Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, this morning verse 11. And we've been in a section in Luke and where Jesus gives three back-to-back parables with the same storyline. Something is lost, something is found, and then there is great rejoicing. And two weeks ago, we saw the parable of the lost sheep, and we saw reflected in that parable the shepherd's relentless care for his sheep. Last week, we saw the parable of the lost coin, and we're reminded in that parable that our identity is not found in our performance, but rather it is rooted in the value God has placed on us by virtue of creation and by virtue of redemption. We saw that as believers in Christ, we've been purchased not with perishable things like silver and gold, but the blood of Christ itself. And so our identity, our purpose, our meaning in life is rooted in God's value that he's placed on us by virtue of creation and redemption. And this morning in the third parable, in these three back-to-back parables, we'll see something of the Father's unconditional love for the lost. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. And he, that is Jesus, said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard the music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, He has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. 
It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, by your word and spirit, enable us to understand more fully and catch a glimpse more clearly of the great love the Father has for the lost. And may we revel in that good news of the gospel this day. And may that gospel move us beyond the focus upon ourselves into this needy world beyond. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In February of 2007, I had the privilege to join several other men who were interested in a church plant and supporting a church plant in St. Petersburg, Russia. Newsflash, do not visit St. Petersburg, Russia in February. I think it reached a, a balmy high of six degrees while we were there. But we also had the privilege to visit the Hermitage. It was a 1,000-room winter palace built by Peter the Great. And much of that area, some 400 rooms, is a museum now. I'm a Rembrandt fan, and there was one room about the size of our fellowship hall that was devoted to nothing but Rembrandts. It was wall-to-wall Rembrandt paintings. And as I walked through and gazed upon those paintings, I found myself standing in front of one I had heard about before, I'd even seen pictures of, but it was a lot larger than I thought. It was eight and a half feet tall and six and a half feet wide. It was painted by Rembrandt towards the end of his life in 1669, one of his greatest works, and it was The Prodigal Son, The Return of the Prodigal. And in that picture, you can see the, the son, the, the wayward son in tattered clothing and torn shoes falling on his knees before the father, and the father is embracing him. And then you see just off to the right, and we're not sure who it is for sure, but possibly the elder brother standing somewhat distant, somewhat aloof with arms in disgust of what's taking place. I was so impressed by the painting that when I came home, I purchased a canvas replica of it, and it hangs in my study today. That, that picture uh, reminds us of what some refer to this parable as a gospel within the gospel. Jesus' uh, parable portrays for us in lifelike characters and living color something what the Father's love is like for lost and wandering sinners. The story really can be described in three easy-to-remember movements. Sick of home, homesick, and then finally, home. What do we learn from this younger brother who became sick of home? Well, we see that running from the Father leads to disillusionment and devastation. I mean, if ever there was a son who broke his father's heart, here he is. He becomes sick of home for whatever reason he wanted out. And so he went to his father and he asked for the inheritance. Now Deuteronomy tells us that the older son would get two-thirds of the inheritance, double the inheritance, and so this younger son is coming and he's asking for one-third. Typically, that didn't take place until the father had passed away. But sometimes there were transactions in which while the father was still living, the son could receive the inheritance, but he could not sell that inheritance 
until the father had passed away. Now, in this case, the younger son couldn't wait for either. He comes and he demands, give me what's coming to me. And when the father does, he gives him a third of the family fortune. We're told that he gathered his fortunes and he left. That word gathered in the Greek literally means to gather everything up and liquidate it to turn it into cash. And so whether it was silver or gold or or property or all the above, he he basically went to check into cash and got his advanced inheritance. But when he did that, it was a public declaration in sense in that culture. As if to say, my father and my family are dead to me. I want out. And he left for a far country But that was more than geography. Far country meant pagan Gentile land. It wasn't just the land. It was a lifestyle. He wanted to go somewhere where his identity could be lost, where there'd be no accountability, and he could live it up and just pursue the flesh as much as he wanted. Many people still today long for a place of this dangerous far country where there's immorality, no accountability, and anonymity. We often hear people joking, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. You know, it's the university student who goes off to college and no longer under the watchful eye of parents or youth pastor. It's the businessman or businesswoman who travels and they check into the hotel by themselves, but they go out to eat with their eye on other people in that place of eating. It's the individual surfing the net, maybe even for porn, under the supposed privacy where they won't get caught. That's where the younger son went. Somewhere where there's no accountability, where he can lose his identity, where there's anonymity. And he lived it up in reckless abandonment, in a lavish lifestyle of sin, spending his entire inheritance, more than likely, on wine, women, and song. And it's this spending is why he's referred to as prodigal. Prodigal does not mean straying or wayward. It means extravagant. It means exorbitant. It means lavish prodigal in this setting means he was wildly extravagant and recklessly wasteful in squandering the family fortune on this lifestyle of sin. But eventually the funds and the fun ran out. A famine hits the land and he finds himself hungry and so he hires himself out to a citizen, a a pagan of that land, And he's told to watch the pigs. Now, even for a young Jewish boy who's trying to run from his identity, trying to leave his religion behind, this would have been a demeaning, disgusting calling, a demeaning and disgusting work. And as he's working, he runs out of funds and he becomes hungry, so hungry as he's feeding the pig slop to the pigs, he wants to dig into it. But even then, the master wouldn't let him. No one gave him, even the pig slop. He was in that foreign country being, in that sense, treated even worse than a pig. And then to add injury to, uh, to, uh, to uh, insult, it's sort of like a garbage collector today 
who's so hungry they want to eat out of the dumpster, but the boss won't let him. That's where he is. It's an extreme picture, but but nevertheless, it's a picture of where running from the Father eventually leads. There, There is death outside the camp. There's destruction. It's a dangerous place, and it leads to disillusionment and danger. One commentator put it this way, when a man has sacrificed his life on the idolatrous altars of pleasure and selfishness in the far country, He's cruelly disillusioned by realizing that the distant land has nothing to offer in lieu of the precious treasures he has wasted there. In his innermost being, he's left impoverished and starved. Listen, sin is always a waste of the treasures that we could have in Christ. Barbara Miller discovered this lesson the hard way. She grew up as a a model child in a model home with a model father as her pastor. She was compliant. She was active in church and in youth group. But at the age of 17, she walked into her parents' room and she addressed Jack and Rosemary Miller, Mom, Dad, I don't want your rules and morals. I don't want to act like a Christian anymore and I'm not going to. Her father desperately tried to reason with her, but she grew more resentful, more angered, and she left home, and she broke her parents' hearts. She became involved in drugs and alcohol and sex. She, she moved in with a man, lived with him a while, and broke up and moved in with a drug dealer. Can you imagine someone you love knowing that they're doing this? That eventually didn't work out, and so after a failed marriage and more broken relationships, she decided to do something with her life. So she entered the university, Stanford University. And while she was working her way through as a waitress, she got to know the bartender, and she moved in with him. His name was Angelo Giuliani, and they lived together. And during this time of running and rebellion, Barbara said this about that time, my, my family never gave up on me. They worked very hard at having a relationship with me, and I worked very hard at staying as far away as I could. Her family was in Philly. She moves to Stanford University in California. You can't get further away on the continental U.S. Running from the Lord, running from family, and it left her broken and empty. This is where the prodigal is. In a far country deliberately estranged from his father and his family, broken and empty due to sin. But what happens when he hits rock bottom? We're told that he he comes to his senses and he begins to become homesick. Look at verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here? So out of hunger, he says, I'm going to head home. And then he comes up sort of with a speech. What am I going to say to my father? So there's this well-rehearsed speech that we have in verses 18 and 19. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, here's his rehearsed speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he rises, and he heads towards his father. Some have looked at this as a picture of model repentance 
coming to our senses over our sin and misery, confessing that our sin is against both God and others, and then returning to the Father. But how do we know what his motives were? I mean, this looks like model repentance, but he's, he's hungry, he's starved, and, and he knows where food is. So is this godly repentance? Is it merely worldly repentance? Is it some strange mixture of both? We don't know. But what we do know, and this is the point of the parable, is that the Father never gave up looking. The Father never gave up longing. The Father never gave up loving His Son. And we're told that when the Son was a far way away, the the Father saw Him. You can imagine the Son now starting His long trek home, rehearsing His lines along the way, and then while still far away, the Father sees Him. He drops everything, and He ran. And this picture of the running of the Father towards the Son is a reminder that the running Father reminds us of His relentless, redemptive love for the lost. To really appreciate the story, we need to understand this was not the response the Son was expecting. Not even close. You see, unlike a dumb sheep that wanders off, unlike a coin that just happens to get lost, this young man deliberately got lost. He willfully rebelled against his father, rejected his family, and he wasted a third of the family fortune. And so a tail between legs expecting to have to grovel his way back into the family farm Rehearsing those lines each step along the way. His father sees him from a distance. His heart's filled with compassion. No doubt his eyes began to overflow with tears and he ran. And he fell upon the neck of his son and he begins to weep and embrace him and kiss him and kiss him and embrace him. And in the midst of this tear-filled moment, the son launches into his rehearsed speech. Father, I've, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But did you notice the father doesn't let him finish? The father interrupts him. He, he cuts him off. He won't let him get to the part about, just treat me like your servant. The father will have nothing of it. The father immediately looks at his servants and says, get a ring, get a robe, get shoes. These are signs and symbols of restoration, of honor, dignity, and being restored to the full status of a son. And let's celebrate. But that's not enough. He, he has to fatten the calf, something rarely done. He, has, he kills the fattened calf, and they celebrate. They eat, they feast. Why? For my Not servant, my son was dead, but is alive. He was lost and is found, and they celebrated. Did you notice in this whole picture that the father would not accept the son on the son's terms? He would not even hear of it. The the father would not accept him back on the basis of servitude, but of sonship. Not on the basis of his merit, but of the Father's mercy. That's why he brought him 
back. The restoration is not based upon the purity of the son's motives, nor upon the thoroughness of his repentance, nor upon the merits of his service, but solely upon one thing, the redeeming love of the Father. You know, there's really good news in that for us. This is really good news for those of us who've strayed and who are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it as we sang, prone to leave the God I love. It's really good news when we fall into grievous sin, when in our hearts or physically we wander off to a far country and we live a debased life and we begin to wonder, will the Father have me back? After all, where I've been and who I am and what I've done, will the Father receive me? And if so, on what grounds? What do I need to do? Do I need to serve Him more faithfully? Do I need to love Him more fervently? This time, do I need to promise and and really, really mean it this time? Oh oh God, I'll be a faithful servant of yours. I, I will be your model child. What do we have to do to know for certain that the Father will receive us in His arms? The answer is simply this. Return. Leave your life of sin in the rearview mirror and return to the Father. Why? Because the Father already has a model child. He already has a faithful servant. And it's not you and it's not me. It's His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Son who on our behalf is the one who served the Father faithfully, the one who pleased Him in all He did, the one who never strayed, He never sinned, the one who obeyed Him completely all the way to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so Christ is the reason That through faith in Him we find favor with the Father. He's the reason the Father runs to and embraces us and bestows His kisses upon us. Christ is the reason the Father restores us to full status by placing a ring of honor on our fingers, a robe of righteousness on our shoulders, and He fits us with the shoes of the gospel of peace. Christ is the reason that we know with confidence. You see, this this parable is intended to teach us that the prodigal nature of the son's sin is no match for the prodigal nature of the father's favor. That's the point of the parable. His love for us is so prodigal, so lavish, so extravagant, so extreme that we can know and feel and sing His grace is greater than all of our sin. And so no matter where you have been and I have been or what we have done, there's always a way back to the Father through repentance and faith and understand the full embrace of this great God. And so if you're wondering what the Father's response might be upon your return, Look not only to this parable, but look to the cross. For there you will see in time and space and history a time in which the Father 
ran. And the good news of the gospel is he still runs. He still loves and pursues folks like us. You know, it's never good to tell a story and leave people hanging. So what happened to Barbara? The runaway covenant child and her live-in boyfriend, Angelo, Actually, it turned into a a beautiful, wonderful picture. The youth just sang of God bringing beauty out of ashes, and he did so in this relationship. Perhaps just simply reading a brief bio from their church's website will help us understand what God has done. Go on the website today at Bridge Community Church, and this is what you'll read. Reverend, yes, you heard that right, Angelo Giuliani is the founding pastor, Bridge Community Church, PCA, and the director of Comfort for Africa, one of Bridge's partner ministries. He's pastored for more than 30 years in a variety of cross-cultural settings, and for the last 12 years, in addition to pastoring, has been involved in relief efforts in the continent of Africa. He and his wife, Barbara, have four children and seven soon-to-be-eight grandchildren. The prodigal has come home. Years later, Barbara and her broken-hearted father, now reconciled, wrote a book together entitled simply, Come Back, Barbara. A wonderful reminder of what we read in Luke 15 still happens today. It means that there's, there's hope for us And for those who may be brokenhearted over loved ones who've cut and run, there's hope for our household as well. Why? The point of this parable is that the prodigal nature of the son's sin is no match for the prodigal nature of the father's favor, for his love and his power in the gospel to change lives. Now, at this point in the parable, the repeated storyline of the three back-to-back parables comes to its conclusion. Something's been lost, something has been found, and now there is a celebration. There's rejoicing. But did you notice in this parable, unlike the previous two, Jesus adds a caveat. He he adds an additional warning, and he does so through the appearance of the older son. When the older son heard the commotion, he calls from One of the servants and he inquires what's taking place. He had heard all this music and singing. And when he found out that it was about the younger son, he was incensed. Now, why does Jesus add this tagline to this third parable? Well, do you remember why Jesus is telling these three back-to-back parables to begin with? Look back at chapter 15 in verses 1 and 2. Look at these again. This is the setting. This is why he's giving the parables. Now, The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, people like the younger brother. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told the parable. What's Jesus doing here? He's making it unmistakably clear that the Pharisees are the older brother. They're they're standing at a distance, arms folded in self-righteous disgust, refusing to enter the Father's house and participate in the celebration. And so what we observe in his response is that just as running from the Father leads to disillusionment and devastation, 
so also self-righteousness leads to disillusionment and distance from the Father. You can see the brother's self-righteousness manifested in his response. He's, he's incensed when he discovers the party is for the prodigal. He's, he's angry. He refuses to go in. So the father comes out and he explains to him, your brother was lost and is found. That's why we're, we're celebrating. But blinded by his self-righteousness and a belief that love for God can be earned by him and was even owed him He's disgusted at the thought of grace and mercy and unconditional love. And he folds his arms in self-righteousness and remains at a distance and refuses to go in the celebration. Oh, he heard the music, but he did not hear the music of Zephaniah 3.17 we saw last week of, the, of God himself rejoicing over with singing. Those who've come to him. He just heard the music and dancing and said, I cannot participate. We'll see more next week of why he refused to go in. But, but here's what I want us to leave us with as we close. The, the danger of self-righteousness is that outwardly, we can appear to be in proximity close to the Father. But in reality, because of the coldness of his heart, he was as far away, if not further, than the younger brother had run. That's what self-righteousness does. It coldly cuts us off from the heart of God. It disenables us to celebrate with others in the grace of God. And in self-righteous distance, we stand with arms folded, self-righteous frowns upon our face because we do not understand and we have not tasted the beauty and the glory of the grace of God in Jesus. Sometimes this parable is referred to as the parable of the lost son. That's what it has in my ESV heading right here, but it can also be called the parable of the lost son's you see, both sons were lost in a different way, but both were just as lost. The difference is that one knew it and the other didn't. Such is the danger of self-righteousness. But thankfully, did you notice the parable doesn't end? The father, hearing the self-righteous rant of the older son, says to him, look, everything I have is yours. Come join the celebration. Why does Jesus leave this open? We don't know what the older son did. We know the younger son came in to the father's house and into his arms. We're left hanging. What did the older son do? We don't know. But I believe Jesus again left this parable open unintentionally as if to say the door's open. Where are you this morning? Self-righteous, religious, standing at a distance, arm's length from the grace of God and the gospel of His Son? Or the rebel at heart who's bolted? It doesn't matter which son you may identify with. What Jesus wants you to do is see the Father. To see a Father whose love is so great He did not spare even His own Son. To see a father who continues to long to see the lost come into right relationship with him. 
to come into his presence through faith in Christ, through repentance of sin, and to join in the joy of salvation and the celebration of the worship of a God who ran, who ran to earth in the person of his son and sacrificed him that we might be reconciled to him. He bids us to come and enter his house of salvation and into his courts with praise. May the gospel of Jesus so grip our hearts that that is who we are and that's how we will live this week before him. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you that you are a God who ran. That, that in this parable we have a picture of what no respectable Jewish man would have ever done. He hiked his robe and he ran. And we have in the cross of Christ what no other respectable false gods would have ever done of sending his own son and humbling him to the point of death on the cross so that we might join in and enter into your house of salvation and to your house of celebration. So God, I pray this week you would remind us that the prodigal nature of our own sin is no match for the prodigal nature of your grace and mercy and favor towards us in Christ. And to teach us, Father, to come just as we are and to keep on coming because such is the nature of the open arms of our great God and Father. And for this we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.